Hi, this is QD Clinic, and I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, coming up in March, three weeks away. This is about integrating new data into your practice. Be there. Today's case is a 54-year-old woman with psoriasis and joint pain, and the dermatologist wants to know, do I refer the patient? So in my meeting notes, I'm going to give you a nice link that you can look at um, written by Alexis Ogdi and others, but I think that there's several things that need to be considered when confronted with this case. As you know, up to a third of patients with psoriasis may develop psoriatic arthritis. We tweeted just the other day or this week that nail diseases associated with psoriatic arthritis. Actually, no, it's not nail pitting. It's onycholysis and nail dystrophy that actually has a better predictive value. Some debate about that. But if you have a psoriasis patient, they're likely to have arthritis if they have worse skin disease. If they do have nail disease, mainly onycholysis. Um, if they have enthesitis and dactylitis, or if they have inflammatory back pain. So differential diagnosis of a psoriasis patient who has joint pain um, could be to run straight to psoriatic arthritis for the cause, but in fact, no. The more likely thing is what we see in consults is osteoarthritis, age-related, and typical osteoarthritis joints, fibromyalgia, sleeping bad, feeling bad, lots of fatigue and joint pain, but nothing to show for it. I mean, their joints don't look that bad. Um, you know, they could also get gout. Psoriasis has higher levels of uric acid and that does equate to more attacks of gout and or nephrolithiasis. So these are the things that you want to look for. The question is, do you refer? Any of those would be a good reason. Chronicity of complaints, uh, meaning uh, I like joint pain and swelling going on 12 weeks more than six weeks, but six weeks is a good enough one. An abnormal lab, but you now have to advise what the evaluation is um, with the dermatologist and whether or not they want to refer. So joint pain more than six weeks, the presence of any of those other findings, I talked about dactylitis, enthesitis, inflammatory back pain, um, persistent joint swelling, especially if it's in but a few joints, and I mean squishy swelling, and then um, you know morning stiffness that's inflammatory, meaning more than 45 minutes. Any of those would be a good enough reason for referral. What about labs? Um, they shouldn't order the ANA 1000. That doesn't make any sense, right? I mean, they should order you know, simple lab, CBC, chem profile. Um, I don't usually do uric acid until they have an established diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis or psoriasis. That's problematic. I do like getting and recommend getting sedrate and C-reactive protein. If there's any confusion because of the number of joints that are swollen, then a rheumatoid factor and a CCP antibody should be done. LFTs would make sense. Um, what about the rest? ANA? No. There's no overlap between psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and anything that looks like lupus or autoimmune. And if you're confusing that, then go ahead and refer it. The rheumatologist will figure it out. But an ANA is useless in this situation. Um, LFTs are often worth getting because psoriatics have a lot of comorbidity, a lot of fatty liver. Um, and that's pretty much all I need to receive a consultation. 
once I receive the patient and if I'm going to treat the patient, I may or may not get imaging. Um, if they have chronic swollen joints, I'm going to get imaging to see if they have any evidence of erosions. But I'm not generally doing a whole lot of imaging tests. I almost never would do an MR or an ultrasound unless I was ultrasound happy. I do have an ultrasound machine, but I don't use it unless I'm looking for enthesitis and the patient has enthesitis. I want to see what it looks like. I can feel good about my skills. It's kind of easy to find tendonitis and enthesitis on ultrasound. MRI, no. I think later on, after I've established the diagnosis, I do want to get hep B um, surface antigen. Um, maybe the panel, which is a surface antibody and a core antibody can tell you about current or past hepatitis B infection. Um, hepatitis C antibody makes a lot of sense. Um, and that's about it. Unless you're going to go on to a biologic that may require TB testing in the form of either a PPD or an IGRA. That's a gamma interferon releasing assay like the TB spot or the quantiferon assay. And that's pretty much the evaluation um, that we need to get started on therapy, which starts pretty basic, anti-inflammatory, no use of steroids, early use of methotrexate, maybe instead using um, a primalast. Um, most of us don't use hydroxychloroquine. And then with severity of disease, we'll consider other therapies. And that's basically the message for another QD clinic. Tune in for more QD clinics We'll see you at roomnow.live. Welcome to QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, where you go from so what to now what, meaning we're about building confidence and certainty. There'll be a lot of certainty thrown around at Room Now Live in a few weeks. I'm Jack Cushman, Room Now. Today's case is a discussion of the patient phone call to discuss the labs. You must get that. I get it all the time. I don't really want to call patients about every lab that I get done. I know if you're a patient and you had labs done, you want someone to explain this to you. Well, you know, there are a lot of ways of handling this. This is my way of handling this. I want my patients to see their labs. I want them to collect their labs, keep them in a folder, bring them to the visits, and we discuss them at visits. If I have the opportunity, I like to look at the labs, stamp them with a stamp that says, Okie dokie, all within normal limits, nothing here to worry about, even if there is something out of range. We can discuss at your next visit. Or the stamp says, there's a concern here, um, concerned about your rising AST, that's a liver enzyme, we need to discuss that at next visit, nothing urgent. You know, obviously things that are urgent, we're going to call the patient and say, urgent, come in, we got to do something. But I don't like having call about every lab. Since I draw a lab on everyone, I can't be calling everyone back about a lab. So I need a method of communication. You got to re realize that there's a big problem here. And this was really a, I think, hit home for me when I was at an advisory board meeting, gosh, it's about seven or eight years ago. And a colleague of mine, uh, you know, in discussing the importance of lab, she said that you know, patients believe their labs more than they believe their doctors. And I thought, oh my God, is that not true or what? I wrote a blog about it. It's called Patients Believe Their Lab Tests More Than Doctors. You can look it up. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I think this really gets to the problem. And the problem is that patient may know you, patient may usually doesn't know you. 
when they're asking for the results of the labs. You know, they've seen a lot of doctors. They're not always accurate. They want me to do things I don't want to do. I don't know why. I want them to do labs just to see how I am. And, and then they don't want to call me back about the labs. Well, in their mind, some of what you do is subjective. In their mind, labs are objective. You got to believe numbers don't lie. They believe that the labs are a numeric representation of their wellness and the true arbiter of their health or not. God forbid you order a CBC, a CMP, sedrate CRP, rheumatoid factor, and of the 47 lines on the three pages of labs, three of them are out of range. Patients are wigging out over this. And you know that this is not necessarily important. The more lines there are on the page, the more tests that are actually run, the more you increase the odds of a random out of range result. Because the range is mainly, you know, who's in the middle of the bell curve, not necessarily an indication of disease state. You know, a low chloride or a high chloride by three points is not going to make or break the clinical situation here, but yet sometimes we have to explain that to patients. It's important. We do have to explain it, but you set up the rules. So you have to sort of dispel this notion that labs are gigantically important. You got to state that labs are being done for your safety and for me to confirm a diagnosis I'm already expecting. If you're doing um, diagnostic fishing by ordering a large battery of lab tests, you're wasting time and money because now you're going to spend a whole lot of time explaining labs that you should never have ordered in the first place. So labs are free. Labs are numeric. Um, you know, and, and, and when something's out of range, how do you explain it? I often explain it by using the speedometer, meaning I don't worry about that AST of 47 because it's a little bit like getting a ticket of doing 57 in a 55. You weren't really speeding. It was just out of range for that moment or two. And that's all it really means. And we don't have to worry about that. You can use this on titers, titers of 1 to 40, 1 to 80 ANAs, almost always meaningless. You know, 20 million Americans have titers that are in that range. Same thing for marginally elevated rheumatoid factor um, or maybe even sed rate or CRP that are just over the edge of being normal. If normal is 20 on a sed rate and it comes back at 25, not much I'm going to do about that, to be honest with you. Now, if it comes back at 85, I've got to explain it, especially if it comes back more than once. So I don't usually repeat labs. Uh, I almost never repeat labs unless they indicate something really wrong is going on and I'm trying to treat that which is really wrong. I think one of the problems is that doctors are to blame for the importance of labs. Why? Well, you often say things like, you know, um, let's look at the labs before I answer your questions about what you have. When the labs come back, I think we'll know what to do next. Um, Mr. Sample seems to be a problem with your labs, meaning a problem with you, Mr. Sample. You know, this is a bit of a problem. You know, so on one hand, you say, you, Dr. Jekyll, says the labs don't mean so much. And then there's Dr. Hyde who say labs mean everything. You wonder why patients sometimes don't necessarily follow what we say or are worried about what we say. So tell them a lab abnormality is not a diagnosis. It's a lab abnormality. I can explain it, but not all of them really need to be explained. Um, tell them when you're ordering a CBC and a CMP 
um, chem profile, I want to look at the creatinine, I want to look at the AST and the ALT, the white count, the hemoglobin, hematocrit, and platelet count, and other than that, I don't care about the other 14 to 28 lines. When one of those five or six things are abnormal, then I use the other things to make up the story and to understand what's going on. And if you explain it that way, maybe they start to understand why there's so much that comes back when they look at their own labs. Make clear that the fact that you're using labs to look at drug safety uh, and that there's nothing to worry about. Um, make clear the fact that I'm doing this specific lab test because I want to decide whether this is gout or reactive arthritis and this lab test will tell me the difference between the two. Order the test once, don't keep repeating it. I don't know why some people keep getting ANAs and rheumatoid factors on people who have negative ANA and negative rheumatoid factor once and they still have joint pain. It's not like it's going to magically become positive. And if it does, it's going to be one out of six times and it's going to be over the range, into the abnormal range, and it means nothing. Um, so again, constant discussion about the importance of labs because you make them important is necessary at each visit. Um, if you do it at each visit, you won't have to do it on the phone or by text messaging or by the portal uh, in between visits. If that's what you choose to do, good luck with that. I like to, again, tell our patients, keep your own folder of your labs and important tests You'll need them when going forward to see other doctors in the future. Hope you find this helpful. Tune in for more Cutie Clinics. This is Cutie Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live, March 19th and 20th coming up. Today's case, when the labs and the exam don't quite agree. A 38-year-old woman with a year and a half of left knee pain and low back pain um, comes in um, to her primary care doctor complaining of 10 out of, of, 10, out of 10 pain and the same. Uh, he does lab tests, finds a rheumatoid factor of 97, normal set rate, sends the patient to you, the rheumatologist. When you see the patient, there's polyarthralgia, um, and um, still some low back pain. She says her pain is now a seven or eight. Um, and um, the patient was already started on meloxicam and hydroxychloroquine and is getting modest, if no relief. She's taking tizanidine for her back pain. She has all day morning stiffness. You examine the patient and you get um, two tender PIPs and two maybe swollen knees and you think this could be rheumatoid but there's seems to be a lot more here than than you're seeing so let's get some labs continue the treatment and labs come back crazy you know like like overwhelmingly rheumatoid. Rheumatoid factor is 250. CCP is greater than 250. CRP is 111 milligrams per liter. The SED rate is 129. Um, you know, the ANA was negative. Uric acid was done by someone else was negative. Uh, hep B, hep C negative. Um, and the question is, overwhelming labs, rheumatoid, underwhelming exam. And I think that um, this happens more 
frequently than we would admit. In fact, there's probably several different types of discordance that we can see. One is when tender joints are far greater than swollen joints. Well, nine times out of 10, that's fibromyalgia or depression. Really puzzling when they've got a lot of swollen joints and they say the swollen joints don't hurt. We tend to think of that as happening in burnt out patients, patients who have burnt out disease, not burnt out, but could be burnt out disease, but patients who had chronic, severe, uh, ongoing inflammation, such, maybe that they don't have, you know, no susceptive receptors anymore, and they don't feel pain the same as you or I would. That's another one, and that's a real challenge. Um, when there's a discordance between the physician global assessment, shall we say, and the patient global assessment, um, physician global assessments are often driven by swollen joints. Patient global assessments are driven by pain and maybe tender joints. Um, and the worst of all might be when nothing on exam and a lot of crazy looking labs, meaning abnormal labs, that there's something brewing probably, um, something going to happen probably. Um, or the converse when the patient has um, normal labs, but a horrific tender exam. Well, again, that's fibromyalgia, uh, depression, and other things, not usually organic or inflammatory disease. I think a few things worth mentioning here about discordance. Number one, recognize that your MD global is driven by swollen joints. The patient global is driven by pain. Um, Secondly, um, John Kay and a few others, Dan First, wrote a paper a few years ago showing in a fairly large cohort of a few studies of RA patients, 58% had a normal set rate in CRP, even though they had active disease. The point of the paper was that maybe such patients don't get into clinical trials because they don't have all the elevated core set variables that you need to have very active disease. In that study, they also had 16% that had both of them elevated. So we rely on set rate and CRP, but often they turn, they sort of um, uh, let us down, and that's unfortunate. Um, I think maybe the truest uh, teaching on this comes from Ted Pincus, who says, you know, we rely on our tender and swollen joint exams, but that's not the whole story, and often... You know, they lie to us. You know, patients get better on placebo as far as tender and swollen joints. Um, patients get better in a lot of different um, uh, domains um, in clinical trials, even though they may be on placebos. And that it is a combination of things you have to rely on, especially self-reported uh, outcomes, PROs, patient-reported outcomes, again, which could include everything from pain to number of tender joints to the health assessment questionnaire, uh, or hack DI, you know, there's a number of things that you can rely on here. The point is that you need all of these to make an accurate and true decision regarding treatment. So um, the bottom line is um, when you find that discordance, it's time to pause and reevaluate. Um, I think that, you know, the more, and then look at multiple domains of outcomes uh, when you're seeing patients. And then the more of those that are abnormal, the more that you can act on them. You know, I never treat a lab alone, right? If this patient had a normal exam and scary looking labs, I would just continue to follow the patient. Let's say this patient had no swollen joints, no tender joints, and had those labs. I would be doing an SPEP. I would be doing Hep B and Hep C. I might be doing a liver ultrasound 
if the liver enzymes are elevated. This patient had a marginally elevated alkaline phosphatase and an AST of 45. Alkaline phosphatase, I think, was 235. Um, you know, rheumatoid arthritis commonly, the disease itself will elevate your alkaline phosphatase, you know, maybe like 50 but no more than 100 points. If it's more than 100 points above your upper limit of normal, you really need to think about evaluating for liver or cholestatic abnormalities in that patient. I thought this was a challenging patient. Um, come to Room Now Live. Let me tell you why. Uh, you know, when we had our very first Room Now Live, um, we asked people to come, and a lot of people did come to the live meeting. A lot of people tuned in uh, virtually online. We were sort of the first to do a hybrid meeting. Um, but those who sat through the first day of the meeting and the whole meeting, they all came up to me at the breaks and at the reception in the evening and said, you know, this is so much different than any other meeting I've been to. And I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's really engaging. And what, what, what's your, what are you doing here that's got me, you know, that you've tripped another trigger in my head as far as learning? And the secret sauce here is shorter lectures, more discussion, um, panel discussions, um, these short TED-like talks that we call step talks, but they're amazing. You know, we're going to have three of them this year, one on pregnancy and why you shouldn't stop your drugs during pregnancy, another one on the death of Caravaggio by Peter Nash, and the third by Ronan Kavanaugh, who's going to talk about the music of rheumatology. What does that mean? I don't know, but I know it's going to be interesting and different. So um, think about attending either online or you know, on site. We'd love to see you. Tune in tomorrow for more Cutie Clinics. Welcome to Cutie Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Cutie Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live. Meetings that matter, meetings that change thinking. That's what Room Now Live is. March 19th and 20th, go to Room Now live to register. Today's case is rheumatoid arthritis and eosinophilia. Hello? Those don't go together, do they? 51-year-old man presents to my clinic with a complaint of uh, hands that are um, stiff and swollen. Uh, this has been going on in him for um, about five weeks, he says. Um, and, um, about three weeks ago, he had a fall and an open wound to his knee for which he received antibiotics. So that was sort of after the onset of his hand problem. He took the antibiotics. The knee is healed up. Doesn't seem to be an issue going on right now. Currently he has pain and stiffness, but really more stiffness in his hands, his arms, his shoulders, his knees, his legs. Shoulders, arms, and legs in a 51-year-old man. If he was 71, I'd be thinking PMR, except he's Hispanic. PMR is less common in Hispanics. It's predominantly a disease of older white folk, males and females. I have diagnosed PMR in a 51-year-old, but I've probably anguished about the diagnosis and, dis and discarded it in maybe 200 others for the one I did diagnose. So it's possible. Uh, he has six hours of morning stiffness. Um, he has fatigue. He has some numbness in his left arm. He doesn't sleep well because of pain. 
On exam, he has swollen joints, nine of them, MCPs, PIPs, elbows, knees, cannot make a fist due to hand swelling, but yet his tender joints are only four. It's a little bit like the last video we did talking about discordance between tender and swollen joints and what's the deal with the swollen joints more so than the tender joints. This one's not long-standing disease. This is a relatively new disease, five to six weeks. Um, right out of the gate, I diagnose the man with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, no lab seen. I give him um, 10 of prednisone a day, tell him to take that for three weeks, and then drop down to five milligrams of prednisone a day. Um, I put him on Tylenol arthritis, uh, four pills a day, and then, which is 650 acetaminophen to BID. And I put him on 15 milligrams of methotrexate a week with daily folic acid. Would you wait for labs? I wouldn't, because what's going to change? You know, it could be weeks before I get my labs and make a decision. I'm treating them and look at the labs in a few days. And if I find a reason to stop, no foul, no harm, stop the methotrexate. Well, his CBC, CMP were all normal. He's got a little bit of anemia going on, a chronic disease. Um, he has a normal CBC, but his white count's normal at, I think it was like 6.0, um, but his eosinophil count is 713. His CRP is off the charts. It's over 6 milligrams per deciliter. Sed rate's 87, rheumatoid factor 217, CCP greater than 250, normal LFTs, negative hep B, negative hep C screen. You know what's going on. Um, his primary care done a chest x-ray in him about a month ago, normal. And the question is, is this rheumatoid arthritis? And if so, what's the deal with this, the very high um, eosinophils? Um, if you're around long enough in this business, you'll see rheumatoids with very high eosinophils. Um, go back in the literature and look at eosinophilia and rheumatoid, and you'll find a lot. Um, Richard Panish um, wrote about this in 1970, I think, and uh, Bob Winchester in, at Columbia did the same thing, and also in the 70s, where maybe the early thoughts was this happens uncommonly, and it may be associated with more severe disease and maybe with more extra-articular disease. Um, and I think that there's a fair number of reports that sort of mirror that. But then when you start looking at larger numbers of reports on this, um, really elevated eosinophilia, especially if you're outside the United States, is uh, frequently associated with um, parasites. And if that's at all a possibility, you got to work hard looking for, you know, schistosomiasis, giardia, you know, strongyloides, whatever. And it's a lot of stool O and P and whatnot. Um, one series, you know, from I think South America showed that all their cases were due to parasitosis. This this particular series I got pulled up here from Emmanuel et al. in 19, 2019, um, a study of uh, 30, 160 patients with RA. 19% had eosinophilia. That's 30 out of the 160. Um, what were the causes? Six of the patients, actually, no, I'm sorry. Um, uh, um, 30 patients had allergic diseases. Okay. Six patients had bronchiectasis. 
Um, one patient had hypereosinophilia of undetermined significance. Um, helminthiasis, parasites, was found in 21%. So eosinophilia, though, was unexplained in 56% of their patients. Um, and they actually went on to give, because they're an endemic area, they went on to give them um, anti-helminthic therapy uh, and showed some improvement. The point is that maybe as much as 5%, 7% of rheumatoids may have elevated eosinophils. I think the algorithm one must go through is to inquire about parasites and that possibility, foreign travel, etc. Um, um, being on the lookout for more severe disease and extraarticular manifestations. Um, and then um, following that, and does it respond? Usually, as the RA patient responds, their eosinophilia usually goes down when it's all due to RA. This has been my experience. What's your experience with eosinophils and RA? Let me know. Tune in tomorrow for another QD Clinic. This is QD Clinic. QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow.Live, March 19th and 20th, a day and a half of exciting earth-shattering, game-changing education by your peers. You should be there. Today's case is about another way to discuss COVID. This happened to me last week. Um, patient comes in to see me, polyarthritis, swollen joints, abnormal labs, blah, blah, blah. We're all wearing masks, having distancing. I always ask patients early on in the history, have you had COVID? No. Have you had the vaccine? No. Pause. Look over. Would you like to discuss that? No. Emphatic no. Big eyes. Big eye roll. Like, how dare me even ask? Again, long pause. I'm sort of like 10 minutes into the history. I've already asked a lot of pithy questions. I'm, she's a little irritated with me. Like, maybe she doesn't like my attitude because I'm kind of grilling her like she's on the witness stand and um, treating her like a hostile witness. I'm really not. I'm just trying to get information out of her in a time-efficient manner. But this is not going well. And then I bring up COVID and it's really not going well. And I pause and I say, could I give you one statistic? She said, no. Okay, we move on. What's the one statistic I would have given her? I would have given her the statistics that in 2020-2021, the frequency of influenza was down 95% everywhere. Dallas County, state of Texas, United States. And why? Because of the mask. And oh, by the way, the vaccine's probably five to ten times more effective than the mask. That would have been my one chance, you know. But an interesting thing happened. An interesting thing happened. And that was, I spent the next half hour going over her, doing a good exam, tell, talking to her about the, the right knee, worse than the left knee, what can we do about it, Sh giving her lots of options, coming to a plan, showing her I cared, basically building trust. And, um, and as I'm writing down my notes for what we're going to do to start therapy on this woman and inject that right knee and whatnot, she blurts out, well, I didn't get the vaccine because my daughter hasn't had it yet. And again, not a good reason. Um, and I started to tell her that that's, we could discuss that if she wants. And, but I want to get back to, and we did her first. And then I said, do you want me to 
tell you about your daughter is getting the vaccine and you getting the vaccine? And she said, okay, what do you have to say? And after talking to me, she said, well, I would like to get it. I plan to get it, but I'm worried about her. And I'm thinking maybe she should get vaccinated first. So what happened after that's not important? What happened is that we created the opportunity to have the discussion. This reminds me of um, Dr. David Karp, our, my chief at UT Southwestern um, and recent past president of the American College of Rheumatology. His presidential address at ACR 2021, the convergence meeting, was called Rheumatology is Amazing. You can read it right now online. Um, in A&R, it's a, it's a nice read. It's about, you know, how we and he and the ACR got through the pandemic and what we're doing to move forward. He references um, uh, Dr. Kimberly Manning uh, and um, how she advised the ACR and us rheumatologists on how to have the discussion with patients, especially patients of color who may have a real bias about that. And in the paper is a citation that says, number one, Ask first, two, listen completely, three, think about who the person is outside of being a patient. No question is stupid. Address without judgment. Keep the dialogue going by probing. What do you think? How are you? Oh, what's your feelings on that? Do you discuss this with your husband? You know, that sort of thing. And acknowledge the slow yes that can occur when you build trust in a relationship in an environment where they're not going to be threatened. I, know, I don't know if this happened to you, but it's happened to me where I want to discuss COVID, protecting them from COVID and getting vaccinated. And the patient is immediately adverse to it. And one of the reasons uncommonly is they've been belittled and berated by their family doctor. I mean, some so severe that the family doctor fired the patient and called them stupid as they fired them for not taking the almighty doctor's advice. Obviously, that's a level of diplomacy that I hope we never achieve as colleagues. But, you know, it's certainly a good way to turn off patients from the utility of your sage advice. So... Being helpful starts with being trustworthy, I guess is what we're saying. So I found it interesting that um, the beginning of the visit started with, no, I don't want to hear from you about nothing. Just address my problems of my joints and I'm done with you. At the end, she's asking me, what do I think? Do I really think it would be safe? These conversations can happen. They take a little time. I like... Dr. Manning's acknowledge the slow yes. Sometimes it takes a while to get to yes. Be there. Be helpful. Tune in tomorrow.